0: Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories and ACE Cultural Tours. Hi, am Artemis, and in today's episode, we're exploring London's lifeblood, water. We take running water in big cities like London for granted now, but for most of our history, we've not had access to it. When did we first start pumping water up from the Thames? How did people wash themselves before they had bathrooms? And why has water been privatised or nationalised or privatised again at different stages in its history? These are all questions that my guest today, Nick Hyam, answers in his new book, the Mercenary River. Stretching from the medieval period to the modern, Nick's book charts the technological and scientific breakthroughs that made London's water what it is today. He dives into the murky politics of this most essential of resources, and offers vivid glimpses into how water was used in daily routines. In this episode, we head back to the early 19th century, when London was groaning under the strain of its own exponential growth. We meet some of the characters who were helping turbocharge the capital's water supply, and those who were polluting it. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just wanted to make a quick announcement about our new sponsor, Ace Cultural Tours. Ace is the oldest and most experienced provider of study tours and cultural travel in the UK, and we're we're so excited to be partnering with them for the rest of this season. We'll tell you a little more about the fabulous tours they offer later on. But for now, here's my conversation with Nick Hayam. So, Nick, thanks so much for joining us this morning on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you on to talk about this extraordinary book that you've written.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You've spent most of your career as an arts and media correspondent for the BBC. So what first inspired you to write this work of economic and social history about London's water? Uh,
1: Actually, I spent the second half of my career at the BBC desperately trying not to be an arts and media correspondent. That was what I formerly was for 15 years. But then I decided that there was more to life than arts and media. And I did all sorts of stories. And I have one of those grasshopper minds that gets interested in everything. So when I became intrigued by something that runs or used to run very close to my home in North London, which was, was called the New River, which is not new, not a river, I went down a kind of rabbit hole and found that the New River, which was built as part of London's water supply in 1613, which is why it's not new, and still, astonishingly, uh, delivers about 10% of London's drinking water every day, I found that that led me into all these interesting avenues of, as you say, social history, political history, economic history, technological history. Water supply, it turns out, probably a reflection of the fact that water is absolutely essential to everything we do. Um, Water supply touches Uh, our lives and, and the history of society in so many different ways. And I just got hooked.
0: Absolutely. And that was going to be my next question was, how did you navigate that? Because when I first came across the Mercenary River, I thought, oh, this is quite niche. But like you've just described, it's absolutely not niche at all. So how did you decide which aspects of water supply you were going to focus on for this book?
1: Uh, the ones that either interested me or which I found during my research seemed to um, spark my interest. And there's actually very few elements, very few aspects of water supply that the book doesn't talk about. It talks about the, the, the science of water analysis and, and the, the history of medicine. It talks about the history of steam engines. It talks about the impact of the water industry on the way the modern business corporation developed. I would argue that the New River Company, which built the new river, was probably, possibly the first modern business corporation in British history. And it was certainly the most profitable. I mean, it was over the 300 years that it existed. It was staggeringly profitable. Someone in the 1980s worked out that if one of the original shareholders had by some miracle survived until 1904, when it was taken over by the Metropolitan Water Board, he would have enjoyed on his original investment a return of 267% a year, and even if you take account of inflation and everything else, that is just absolutely staggeringly jaw-dropping. It's huge, and you know, I want, I wanted to know more about all of these things. Mm,
0: it's, it, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, you've just, you've just given like a fascinating statistic there. But was there anything else that was particularly surprising that you came across in your research that, when you stumbled across it, you thought, oh, this really changes my idea about London's history or about London's water
1: history um, there must be I can't I can't instantly call them to mind there must be scores of moments uh, when researching the book and um, which I hope are reflected in readers minds when they read the book and sort of astonishing gosh I didn't know that but oh I had a revelation for instance about laundry I like most people I take water in the modern world for granted it's there you turn a tap it comes out and I take laundry for granted you know I wash my clothes I have a washing machine um, most people have access to a washing machine. What I had never realised was how much hard work laundry was, almost always done by women in the pre-modern era. They talked of, you know, their hands bleeding, washing all this clothing, how essential laundry was to keeping everybody clean and sweet smelling. They didn't wash themselves much. we talk about that perhaps a bit later. But they did wash their clothes, which absorbed their sweat and made them fit to be around. And it also used an awful lot of water In a world in which water was in really quite short supply, um, every drop of water had to be saved, you know, carefully carefully dealt with because almost nobody had lots and lots of it. And how disruptive doing the laundry was because if you were going to do a household wash once a week, everybody's clothes would get washed, you had to heat the water for a start because you, you had to have hot water in order to make early modern soap lava. And heating the water meant you had to do it on the kitchen fire, which was the only way to heat water, kitchen fire occupied all day by water. So there was no way of cooking hot food. And all the kind of utensils would be used, all the bowls and 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 tubs and so on in the house would be um, pressed into service for the laundry. And at the end of the process, you then had to dry the stuff. And if you had a nice garden, then that was fine. But most people either didn't have a garden or in the sooty atmosphere of London, they didn't want to put their clean clothes out to dry outdoors. So the house would be festooned with damp clothing for possibly days in in winter whilst you tried to get uh, over the laundry. And by the time you got it out of the way, bang, next week or next fortnight to come around, you had to just start doing it all over again.
0: I agree, that was one of my, um, my favourite parts of the book as well, that description of, of doing the laundry was extraordinary and I'm looking forward to talking about it in more depth um, later on because I know it's included in one of your scenes. So perhaps we should get straight onto it then. Uh, Nick, if you could travel through time,
1: what year would you choose? Uh, well, I would choose probably 1837 and it wouldn't be because I think it would be a particularly pleasant period to visit. 1837 uh, is in the middle of that extraordinary period when London is um, kind of doubling in size every 20, 30 years. It's very short of water. So the new water companies have been springing up all over the place to supply the growing city. And at the same time, a bright spark at the end of the 18th century has invented the flushing water closet. And flushing water closets produce lots and lots of effluent that has to go somewhere. And it was all going into the River Thames. And so the River Thames was unprecedentedly polluted, which was a problem because most Londoners, unless they had new river water, most Londoners got their water from the River Thames and the River Lee, their tidal stretches. Um, Things were pretty bad. They would, in fact, get worse. They will get much worse in the coming decades. I suppose the Nadia was probably 1858 when the Thames became so polluted in a, a, a record hot summer um, that uh, what was known as the Great Stink forced um, MPs to abandon Parliament, which was, of course, next to the river. Court sittings, court hearings had to be abandoned. People fled London to get away from the Great Stink. And that triggered Finally, government action to clean up the river in the shape of the great sewer network that the engineer Joseph Bazalgette designed and built. And there were other terrible things later in the 19th century. Cholera came along, um, a direct product of this pollution of the water supply, three great waves of cholera. Um, But there are signs in 1837 that things might get better. There are people thinking about ways to improve the water supply, and that interested me.
0: You've spoken a bit about what's to come in London's water history. But um, before we go to your year of choice, could you give the listeners a bit of context about what had been happening in the in the decades before 1837? What important uh, technology had been developed that was important?
1: Uh, well, there were two things I think that were uh, particularly important as the city grew. One was that steam engines had arrived in London. The first steam engine um, was installed in London by a water company called the York Buildings Water Company in the 1720s. Um, in fact, they took it out of service quite quickly because it was too expensive. It used huge amounts of of coal, but it was um, it was a, a a wonder of the modern world. It was known as the um, uh, the York Buildings Dragon. It emitted vast clouds of smoke and and Everybody was mesmerized it who saw it because it was so quite, so extraordinary. And over the, the centuries since, steam engines had first of all been developed. They've been improved and they've been installed almost everywhere in, in London's water industry. Um, the thing for, London water companies is that they got their water out of the Thames or the Lee, with the exception of the New River Company, whose water just flowed down this aqueduct um, by gravity. And if you're going to force river uh, water up out of a river, you've got to pump it. And you can power your pumps with horses, you can power them with water wheels, you can power them with windmills. But what the London water companies had discovered was that uh, steam-driven pumps were the most effective powerful way so London had actually become a very important market for for steam engines for steam engine manufacturers and the other thing that had happened was that in from about 1810 to 1820 lots of new water companies had started up to serve the growing city competing with one another competing disastrously uh, I mean they undercut one another on price. They indulged in dirty tricks. Their workmen laying pipes would have fights with rival companies, workmen. They stole customers from one another. It was absolutely shambolic. And it was costing them a huge amount of money. And in 1817, north of the river, they, they came to a secret arrangement dividing the, the capital up between them. Uh, They formed a kind of cartel or oligopoly, uh, which each company took its sole area. So there was no competition. The prices instantly shot up. Customers, consumers were absolutely furious. They felt betrayed and abandoned and you know taken for granted, which they were. Um, But that brought a degree of stability to the London water industry, which enabled the water companies then to focus on new technologies. And one other new technology that I'll mention, in 1825, one of the London water companies had experimented with something called a slow sand filter everybody knew that the water was from the Thames was rather dirty. And um, a clever man called James Simpson, who was the chief engineer of the Chelsea Waterworks, experimented with the idea of allowing dirty water to trickle down through layers of sand and gravel to, to filter it, to clean it. And this proved to be quite effective. He didn't know it at the time, but he thought it was just mechanically straining the water. But actually, the, the, the way slow sand filter beds work is, is they form a layer of biological layer on the top, which is rather wonderfully known as a schmutzdecker, which is a German word that means slime blanket. And they biologically purify the water. And this was an important development. And today, modern London, uniquely among major Western cities, two thirds of our drinking water is still filtered using these slow sand filters. Mm. Mm, That's
0: fascinating. Just before we get into your first scene, one more question that I wanted to ask you, which I think provides will provide the listeners with some important context. The growth of London as a city seems to be a really important part of the story at this juncture, that London is just growing exponentially. Why was it expanding so rapidly, first of all? And how did its growth compare to other European cities?
1: Oh, it was the biggest city in Europe by far. It had been in the, the Elizabethan times, it had been one of the sort of top three or four by the early 19th century, it was unquestionably the biggest, and that was a uh, product of the wealth of Britain because of the Industrial Revolution, um, the enormous amounts of, of money that were being generated. It was also a, a reflection of the fact that London was Britain's biggest port and remained so right through into the mid-20th century. Uh, the Thames, all the way up the Thames, was lined with wharves and, and docks and shipping. Uh, there was, you know, ships had to moor all, all the way down the river, in the middle of the river, to be unloaded by lighters because there simply wasn't the space on the quays um, until they built the enclosed docks. And it was also probably uh, the biggest manufacturing city in, in, in Britain. Um, you think, one thinks of, you know, Manchester, Leeds, the great cities of the north, Birmingham being the places where the Industrial Revolution took hold and made stuff. But actually, London made huge amounts of stuff, both on a large scale and in small workshops. So it was Economically, unbelievably vigorous and active, and people flocked to it. People came just as they come now to live in shanty towns on the outskirts of big cities in the developing world. They came to London to live in the slums, to work because they thought the streets might be paved with gold and it was better than languishing at home in the country.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much for providing all of that excellent context. Um, I think it's time for us to set off to our first scene in 1837. So, Nick, would you like to tell us where we are?
1: yes we 're on the banks of the River Thames in Brentford, near what is now Kew Bridge, uh, where the South Circular Road crosses the uh, River Thames from from uh, the the Green at Kew to going up towards uh, Chiswick, and we 're at a building site because one of London's water companies, there were um, at this stage eight or nine of them, private water companies, one called the Grand Junction Waterworks is building a new intake and a new pumping station there and would have built new filter beds. It's first filter beds, but the money ran out. So they didn't get around to building the filter beds until about 15 years later. And the reason they've done this is because... They previously got their water from the River Thames uh, in Chelsea at the mouth of what was known as the Ranelagh Sewer, which was actually the River Tyburn, right by the uh, Chelsea Royal Hospital. And the Ranelagh Sewer took huge quantities of deeply unpleasant effluent, which uh, came down into the Thames and the company's water intake, and it was right by the entrance to the sewer. And in 1827, a campaigning journalist had published a, a pamphlet called The Dolphin. And the, a, the a dolphin is a nautical term for a sort of wooden structure that protects a key, or in this case, protects the, the water intake. And he really was the first person to highlight the appalling quality, filthy quality of the water that not just the Grand Junction, but most of the London water companies were uh, serving up. And he described the stuff that the Grand Junction provided as a fluid saturated with the impurities of 50,000 houses, a dilute solution of animal and vegetable substances in a state of putrefaction alike, offensive to the sight, disgusting to the imagination and destructive to health. And I may say, actually, one of the delights of research in this book was coming across these unbelievably over the top descriptions of quite how filthy, London's water was. Anyway, the the Grand Junction was deeply, deeply embarrassed by this. And indeed, all the London water companies were and uh, the dolphin provoked a, a parliamentary inquiry, which didn't really come to any very good conclusions except to agree that the water in the River Thames was really very unpleasant, very dirty and not fit for for human consumption. And the Grand Junction was embarrassed into moving its intake several miles upriver. Part of the problem was that the Thames and the Lower Lee, which was also a source for some of the water companies, were tidal. And all this sewage running into the river would in theory be swept down river except that on the next tide it would be swept back up river and there are you know descriptions of people watching the same dead cat going up and down on the surface of the river with the tide for several days at a time so the effluent never got cleared it never got never never went away and this was the stuff that the water companies were serving up and the Grand Junction believed correctly that the, although the Thames is still tidal at Kewbridge, it was probably cleaner uh, than it was further down river. And so they moved.
0: And you've, you've painted a bit of a picture for us already about what the Thames would have looked like at this point in time with the um, the dead animal, <laughs> dead animals floating on top. But at Kew Bridge, what would we be able to see? I did another interview with um, a historian of London called Tom Chivers, who also wrote a lot about rivers, London's rivers, in his book. And he described how people were using the river in the uh, well in the early Roman period. What, how were people using the river in this period, or were they even using it at all, or was it only the water they were getting from the Thames was being distributed into their houses by water companies?
1: Oh the river itself was was extraordinarily busy um in, down in central London it was not only was there huge quantities of foreign shipping but there were enormous numbers of vessels on it um it was before the era of um, modern buses and tubes and so on it was uh, the quickest way to travel uh, up and down the length of the river it was to was to take a boat we were i forget the dates we we had either just had or were just about to get the first steamboats on the uh, on the Thames I think we, we just had the first steamboats, um, which were paddle driven. And unfortunately, the paddles churned up all the kind of gunk and muck in in the river and just made matters worse. Um, So it was extremely busy. Up at Kew Bridge, it was still pretty rural. And that meant that you didn't have lots of houses and manufacturers and so on discharging their uh, sewage into the river you did actually right next door to the Grand Junction Works, you did have a gas works, and the runoff from gas works was pretty toxic and was one reason why um Thames River water was unfit, but it was comparatively cleaner and comparatively quieter the Thames less busy up at up at Kew bridge, so it was a it was it was still tidal there was still a problem with stuff coming up on the incoming tide, but it was definitely cleaner than uh, uh, it would have been. Um, and and the, the reason it was so dirty was that up until the end of the 18th century, most people in London uh, had a cesspit on their property and their, their closet would, em- would empty into that cesspit which had to be cleaned out periodically by chaps called gong farmers and since most London houses are terraced houses you know this meant spending the whole night while the inhabitants slept the gong farmers would be ferrying all this stuff through the, the house to their carts and then the stuff would be taken out to the countryside and used as fertilizer actually on market gardens so the Metaphorically, Londoners would be eating their own excrement. Um, And cesspits were, I won't say they were fine, but they worked until the invention of the flushing water closet, which produced so much water that the cesspits were simply overwhelmed. And all this water, instead of going into a cesspit, all this sewage, feces, went into the local sewer, which then discharged into the river. And that's what made the Thames so smelly and so filthy
0: i mean that was another bit that i really enjoyed about the book because i i have to admit it had literally never crossed my mind to think what people did with their waste before the invention of the flushing loo so the description you describe so wonderfully in the book the um the go, the is it gong farmers
1: yeah, gong farmers, gong they were farmers,
0: called, yeah. and uh, this um, kind of middle-class intellectual who joined them one evening to observe their work and was so overtaken by the smell, but then said that it, it after ten minutes it kind of went away, which was also fascinating.
1: Yes, and they were very jolly and very cheerful and full of cockney jokes, which may have been um, uh, helped along by the, the 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 beer and and the gin and the bread and cheese that they'd been given. I doubt very much that they um, washed their hands before eating the bread and cheese, but anyway, uh, they were happy.
0: Let's talk a bit about the dolphin, uh, the pamphlet. In your book, you observe um, some of the kind of similarities between anti-slavery literature of the same time, which I found really interesting. To what extent was cleaning, cleaning London's water seen as a moral cause by its advocates?
1: Well, there were two things here. One was that the um, d- dolphin was one of a number of indications of a new kind of consumer consciousness, consumer pressure on private industry, which not previously, there'd been some very faint stirrings of this in the 18th century. But in the early 19th century, um, the notion of the consumer and consumers having an interest and having a voice and being able to lobby and so on, that was a new idea. And the water industry really helped it along the london water industry because that was an area where you know everybody had to use the water so there was a, an obvious mass uh, consumer interest so that was one thing and the consumer lobby borrowed quite a lot of the techniques public meetings pamphlets posters which had been previously developed by the anti slavery lobby um so, that, so th- that that was one thing and that consumer movement was powerfully allied To a kind of moral movement, which, 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 which was principally concerned with the slums, uh, not only in London, but, you know, in other big cities. And slums were seen as not only dirty and disease-ridden and, and horrible places, but places of, of vice. And there was this, in the, in the early 19th century mind, or indeed the mid 19th century mind, there was this very distinct connect between dirt and degradation and immoral behavior. And it was thought that if uh, the slums could be cleaned up, then people might live cleaner lives, morally cleaner lives. And cleaning up the water was seen as part of that, in particular, of course, because the water was so filthy and tasted so horrid, most people didn't drink it. And they drank beer instead. And that offended moral campaigners who thought that they were all getting drunk and that if we could improve the water supply, then maybe people would um, would, would, would would no longer get drunk and all the problems of drunkenness would miraculously go away.
0: Well, that does lead me on to a final question that I had um, on this scene, which was about, you mentioned the developments in water and filtering water, but for the people who weren't getting filtered water, what would they do with it once it arrived in their, was it usable, unfiltered water?
1: Uh, well, it had to be usable because they didn't have any alternative. If you if you were a a member of the middle classes, you might have a your own private filter in addition to whatever the companies did to clean their water. Um, and you might have a, they look rather like sort of Russian samovars, they often sat on the sideboard in the and you pour water in and it would be filtered through charcoal. But the principal means of cleaning water, whether it was by the companies on the grand scale or by individuals, was to simply let it stand so that all the nasty bits um, sank to the bottom. The companies did this in what they called subsiding reservoirs, and individuals did it in the cisterns uh, or butts or water butts or tanks that they had in their houses. One thing we should say, water was supplied not continuously in the pipes as it is today, but on a schedule. Each street would get water for two or three hours three or four uh, two or three day t- times a week um, it would be turned on by a company turncock and turned off again, and you had to have a butt or cistern in order to store the water and then that cistern would have a little tap at the bottom and 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 you would draw water off as you needed it um, and those cisterns were one way of purifying the water if you were poor, you did not have a nice house with a cistern you had either a pump which would be connected to a well which was very probably polluted. You didn't know this, but it would probably be polluted by nearby cesspits. Um, the well would be provided by the parish, a parish pump. Or your landlord in the slums might install a stamp pipe or a tap which would provide water when the local turncock turned the water on, so everybody had to queue up. The, the turncock would work on a regular schedule, so everybody would know that at lunchtime on Tuesday there would be water. So everybody would have to queue up at the standpipe, and 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 fill their buckets. Or, you know, lots of slum properties would share a sort of receptacle, a tank, uh, which were not, and those were notorious. They were absolutely full. They were full of rubbish of all kinds, and people would wash their hands in them and wash their chamber pots in them, and it, yeah, horrid. Uh, and uh, you really don't want to be a slum dweller in eighteen thirty it's truly truly grim.
0: You mentioned earlier you touched on the cholera outbreaks later on in the century and I I know this isn't it's not specifically technically in the year 1837 but I just wanted to spend a bit of time asking you about it because I work sometimes on Broadwick Street and there's a replica pump one of John Snow's pumps on Broadwick Street can you talk a bit about the cholera outbreaks and how they're related to water distribution in the 19th century?
1: Yeah, well, this is John Snow, who's one of my heroes, um, the man who essentially invented epidemiology, uh, the science of epidemiology. Also, as it happens, uh, pretty much pioneered anaesthetics in anaesthesia in this in this country. He was a remar- uh, remarkable man. Um, Snow was the first person, really, to a surmise and then b demonstrate that cholera was carried in polluted water, and that. Water which had been made dirty by the faeces of a cholera sufferer would then be drunk by other people who would acquire this little unpleasant bacterium which would live in their um, uh, digestive system and basically kill them. Uh, very quickly and it was apparently a a horrible way to die Um, and Snow's kind of legendary intervention was in 1854 there was a cholera outbreak in Soho, Broadwick Street um, as it is now, Broad Street as it was then known, had a pump And Snow lived nearby and he did some investigations and he worked out that most of the people in Soho who died of cholera lived within a very short distance of this pump. And according to the legend, which is, has been embroidered and is not strictly true. You'll have to, you'll have to read the book to understand quite how the legend differs from the reality. Um, he got the local parish authority to take the handle off the pump and the cholera outbreak died away. And from this, he was able to conclude, look, the, cholera is in the water uh, and he did a second piece of work a much much bigger piece of work uh, south of the river well, there was it was the only part of London where two of the private water companies actually com- still competed with one another uh, the Lambeth waterworks and the Southern Vauxhall waterworks so it was the only part of London where you had identical properties side by side getting water from two different companies and Snow did a lot of very Hard work to establish that the death rate from cholera in houses that took the Southern Vauxhall water was 10 times the death rate from cholera in houses that took the Lambeth water. So the Southern Vauxhall water was poisoning the people. And the reason for that was that the Southern Vauxhall took its water from an intake in Battersea, where Battersea Power Station now is, in the very polluted part of the river. The Lambeth company, by that stage, whose chief engineer was also this clever fellow, James Simpson, who'd invented the first filters, they'd moved their intake all the way up to Thames Ditton in the non tidal part of the Thames, the first company to do that. All the companies were forced to do that by legislation later, but Lambeth was the first to do it and did it unprompted at, at Simpson's suggestion. And their water was cholera free. And the, you know, it, it's demonstration of the power of epidemiology, power of statistics to uh, identify disease. Astonishingly, by the time he died a few years later, Snow's uh, insight, which to us seems so blindingly obvious, was still not accepted. People refused to accept that, water, that cholera was waterborne. It wasn't until about 10 years later that the consensus finally shifted. Mm.
0: Well, thank you for explaining that, because I do think it's a really important part of this story, even if it's not technically in our chosen year. But going back to 1837, um, Nick, would you like to tell us where we are for our second scene?
1: Yes, we're in Cornwall. And uh, a young man called Thomas Wicksteed, who's not yet 30, uh, is the chief engineer of the East London Water Works, has been sent down there to buy a steam engine. As I say, steam engines were kind of routine kit by this stage for London water companies. But Wicksteed had heard that down in Cornwall, they had been developing for use in Cornish mines, a new kind of steam engine which was much more powerful and much more efficient, up to 10 times more powerful than the uh, machines, many of them made by Bolton and Watt, James Watt and his partner Matthew Bolton in in, uh, in Birmingham, which had been the standard uh, sort of workhorse of the industry. And he went down there in 1835, actually, and did some research and came back and said to his directors, look, these, these things are brilliant. We we really ought to get them. And the director said, we, we don't believe it. I'm, I'm sorry, the figures are just too outrageous. It's, it can't possibly be true. And so they didn't do anything until two years later when one of the directors of the East London Waterworks was a man called Joseph Grout, said he'd heard of a second-hand Cornish engine, which was going cheap. Perhaps they should buy that and put these um, performance figures to the test. And so Wicksteed went down, saw this engine, Um, and wrote back in triumph to his directors that he'd uh, done the deal, he'd he'd bought it, it was going to be refurbished um, by the people who'd manufactured it, a company called... um Harvey's in, in Hale in North Cornwall. And then they were going to bring it up to London and install it in the East London Waterworks pumping station at Old Ford. And this, in due course, they did. What Wicksteed didn't realise, um, and what I didn't realise actually until uh, looking into this and lots of other people didn't, was that actually he'd been had. Um, yes, the machine it was was very efficient. It was a good machine. But Joseph Grout had said they could get it cheap. And Wicksteed ended up paying £7,000 for it, although the original purchasers had paid only 4000 So he was paying nearly twice as much as the original purchasers. Who were the original purchasers? Well, they were something called the East Cornwall Silver Mine, uh, who had been set up to exploit potential silver deposits. And like so many nineteenth century mining companies had gone rapidly and spectacularly bust, and who was the chairman of the East Cornwall Silver Mine? Well, it was Joseph Grout who appears not to have admitted this conflict of interest to his fellow directors of the East London sent Wicksteed off and uh, you know rescued three thousand pounds from the debacle that was the East, uh, East, East Cornwall waterworks. but uh, these Cornish engines were they were genuinely much more powerful. Uh, they have been developed over about 20, 30 years by a number of uh, Cornish mining engineers, of whom the most imp- important was a man called Richard Trevithick, And they became the standard workhorses in the London water industry. And you can still see some of them in situ. And one of them, indeed, still works at the London Museum of Water and Steam at Kew Bridge. They steam it from time to time. Where is the London Museum of Water and Steam? Well, it's at that pumping station that the Grand Junction Waterworks was building in 1935. The machines there installed in the 1830s, 40s, 50s worked for decades right through until the 1940s. And um, that was when the place, was, as a modern pumping station, was, was uh, taken out of service, but was with some you know, foresight, turned into uh, a museum of water and steam. And it if you're remotely interested in this, absolutely fascinating place, I do recommend it.
0: Well, that's great to hear because that was going to be my next question. Could, if you could describe what this second-hand engine looked like. I'm, I've been to the um, London Museum of Transport and I'm imagining this kind of great hulking piece of what, I mean, of metal. What would it have been made of? How big was it? How did he transport
1: it back to London? Uh, it was made of cast iron, for the most part and brass and it, it it it's three or four principal components there was a cylinder uh, a enormous circular thing. The biggest Cornish engine cylinder ever cast was twelve feet across. The the the, the two that survive at the Q uh, Museum, uh, one is ninety inches across, and one is a hundred inches across. The Q ninety inch, and the Q hundred inch. Um, and into this uh, 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 cylinder, steam would be injected and would force a a piston basically up and down in the in the pipe, and then there would be At the top of that, a huge great beam weighing tons, tons and tons of cast metal, which would rock on a fulcrum up and down. So the piston would drive one end of the beam up and down, and the other end of the beam would be attached to the other really huge and enormous part. Weighing several uh, tons, which was the plunger of the pump, and they—they're—they're they're, they're too big. The ninety-inch and the hundred-inch at Q Bridge are still in the original building that was uh, built for them, a little bit later than this in the eighteen forties. Um, they are so big you can't sort of take them in. They—they—they they, they go up two, three stories. Uh, they're just these great hulking bits of metal. Uh, but when you see them working, they're beautiful. They're wonderfully elegant. They—they uh, they seem to work without effort uh, with with a certain sort of mechanical grace i think part of that is because they no longer pump water and when they were actually uh, pumping water there would have been quite a lot of uh, movement and shaking and and vibration but these days they they have a sort of almost balletic appeal to them uh, when, they're, when they're working. They are quite jaw-dropping. There are others you can see elsewhere in London. Some of the most spectacular are at a place called Crossness near Thamesmead on the South Bank, which were built actually to pump, not clean water, but to pump sewage. So all of South London's sewage was originally pumped through the pumping station at Crossness, And there, they there are four absolutely vast engines. And again, one of them has been restored and works from time to time. And they're working on a second and they have periodic open days. And I do. I do recommend these machines. They're wonderful.
0: And I'll, I'll endeavour to include a photo, or perhaps a video of one of them working for our website for anyone who can't get down to London to see them for themselves you mentioned the kind this the the way that thomas uh, wixside had been swindled slightly in the in the purchasing of this uh, this steam engine and shady business dealings is quite a recurrent theme in this book <laughs> um two questions first of all um how difficult was it to research that aspect of the book and second of all what can the story of um london's water tell us about a kind of broader picture of the development of market capitalism in Britain.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, the, uh, the research is, is straightforward in one sense. I used two archives, one at this museum at Q Bridge, which has uh, a number of um, uh, 19th century publications, including an almost complete run of a wonderful journal called the Journal of Gaslighting, Water Supply and Sanitary Reform, which looks intimidatingly boring and dense at first sight. But it's, in fact, full of fascinating information about the the water companies and also the gas companies. Um, The other archive is at the London Metropolitan Archives in Clerkenwell. And when all these private water companies were taken over in 1904 by the Metropolitan Water Board, all their corporate records went to the Metropolitan Water Board, which in turn was privatised became Thames Water. And Thames Water sent these records to the LMA, the London Metropolitan Archives. And the the archive is absolutely enormous. I have merely scratched, scratched the surface of it. If someone is setting out now... Uh, to, you know, as a PhD researcher and wants a career, a lifelong career, just working their way through the, the water company records at the London Metropolitan Archives uh, will produce end, you know, endless uh, monographs and and potential for books and so on. Uh, so it was it was straightforward in the sense that the, the the stuff is easy to access until COVID came along, of course, and closed all the archives and and, and libraries. But uh, it's intimidatingly large the 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 the, the archives. Um, they were. Crooked. a lot of these businessmen there's nothing sp- specific here about the london water industry but certainly in the early part of the 19th century the regency period most businessmen seem to have been bent i mean the thomas wicksteed worked for the east london waterworks when it first started out its first chairman was a crook they'd all agreed the directors that they would not Um, sell their shares before the company started trading so as to avoid speculating and price increases. He completely ignored that. He made thousands of pounds by insider trading, basically. And then uh, a few years later, it transpired that uh, as one of the justices of the peace, one of the magistrates for Middlesex, he had embezzled 18,000 pounds of public money and fled uh, fled to the continent and was never heard of again. But he's not untypical of the kinds of people in the early stages of 19th century capitalism who got involved in um, all sorts of businesses, not just the water business, almost any kind of business. And throughout the 19th century, um, it's quite clear that there are people involved in the water industry whose standards of business by comparison with modern standards of business, the conflicts of interest they have, the insider dealing and so on, uh, they simply don't come up to snuff. And I won't attempt to explain it now, but one chapter of the book is devoted to a Accounting irregularities, you might call it, um, or you might call it potential fraud, uh, conducted by two of the water companies and their chief engineer in the very in the eighteen seventies, which nearly brought those two companies to bankruptcy, but was kind of typical of the business methods of the of the era. So I don't believe that the water companies were exceptional, but they do illustrate many of the problems of of um, Victorian capitalism.
0: There's nothing that quite brings the past to life like travelling to see where a momentous event took place, where an art movement sprang to life, a battle raged, or the first notes of a symphony sounded. If you're culturally curious, and looking for a holiday with a difference, take a look at Ace Cultural Tours, who sponsored this episode of Travels Through Time. They've been taking tour groups globetrotting for over 60 years, and their tours cover a range of interests and destinations with plenty on offer in the UK, as well as further afield. All Ace tour groups are hosted by subject experts, who are often able to provide exclusive access visits to private art collections, houses and gardens. Whether you want to feel the wind in your hair on the Roman frontier at Hadrian's Wall, follow in the footsteps of Picasso and Matisse around the Côte d'Azur, or contemplate hundreds of years of worship at Japan's oldest surviving temple, Ace are sure to have something for you. Find out more via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223 841055 that's 01223 841055 thank you for answering what was a slightly yeah broad question we've gone through we've gone we've been in west london and we've been in cornwall and we've touched a bit on east london as well where are we for our third and final scene in 1837 where are we standing what could you describe in fact the place
1: uh it's a very large house and uh it's still there uh it still exists today although it has um changed its appearance somewhat. We're in Buckingham Palace, um, which uh, in those days did not have that um, enormous kind of overbearing front wing, which looks out onto the mall. Um, It had a rather nice courtyard and the stone was yellower and mellower. Anyway, Buckingham Palace, newly crowned Queen Victoria, has moved into Buckingham Palace. I've no idea how many rooms Buckingham Palace has, but in 1837, none of them was a bathroom they were, and this was not untypical of the way even affluent people in the 1830s lived, the idea of a plumbed-in bath was a a very novel one. The, The architect John Soane, who was, you know, was kind of ahead of the curve, he had a bath installed in his house in the 1820s in Lincoln's Inn Fields, but he was very unusual. So Queen Victoria, if she were to have what she would have called a bath, would probably have had it in her dressing room in front of the fire, and it would either have been a hip bath or something called a moon bath, um, where you, you stood upright in this sort of shallow basin and poured water on yourself and then soaked yourself and then poured more water on to rinse yourself off. Because the bath, the sort of immersion in a bath, was something that was considered actively actually dangerous medical advice for a long time in the, in the 19th century was that baths were really quite dangerous things particularly hot baths and should be taken only under medical supervision and you have the a, a period of i suppose about 40 50 years between the beginning of the 19th century and the the, the 1850s when gradually the those who could afford it became conscious of the fact that they might be cleaner and sweeter people and nicer to be around if they took regular baths, not daily baths or showers as we might, because there wasn't enough water for that. But, you know, if they washed themselves regularly and gradually... Baths appeared in in affluent houses in dedicated bathrooms, but but not really until the sort of eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties. And most, mo- if if you had a plumbed-in bath, it would be kind of reverse engineered into a into a dressing room or something. And there are some lovely descriptions of taking a bath by a woman called Dorothy Hartley, who wrote was writing in the mid twentieth century, but was remembering her. Uh, early years and she talks about the, you know having hot water brought up by the the, the maid and uh, standing in front of the fire and sluicing herself down she she describes herself rather s- sweetly uh, as standing in one of these moon baths like a pink lighthouse and I'd like to think of Queen Victoria standing in a moon bath at Buckingham Palace like a, a pink lighthouse slightly dumpy lighthouse but nonetheless Gra- gradually the fear of baths and it was, There was considerable caution about about baths dissipated, um, though they were still somewhat exotic things, and and people people could make jokes about it. The wonderful Diary of a Nobody by George and Weedon Graysmith, which Mister Pooter. The, the small clerk who moves into his new house with his family and has uh, aspirations to get into the sort of upper middle class. Mr. Pooter installs a bath and the, the uh, he repaints it. Uh, he, he thinks that the enamel has got chipped, so he repaints it red and then fills it with very hot water, gets in and suddenly finds he's, he himself has gone red um, and thinks he's a bit like the french revolutionary marat stabbed on his bath by charlotte corday and he's bleeding um uh so they were they were it was possible to make humor and 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 remark out of baths you can overstate how dirty people were before the era of baths though because they did wash their underclothes their linen underclothes absorbed the uh, sweat and dirt and that's why it was so important to do the laundry and do it frequently because it's what kept people tolerably clean. But it was, as we've established, extremely hard work and very, very tiring um, uh, and very arduous and largely done by maidservants.
0: In the book, um, you mentioned the work of the historian Ruth Goodman, um, who investigated this question of whether people in the past smelt bad all the time. Could you tell listeners a bit about what she found? Because I, I found this so interesting.
1: Yes, she sort of recreates the way people lived in former former times. And she did this actually in connection with the recreation of uh, Tudor London. Uh, And she found, she made one television programme, one television series, in which she changed her her hose, her stockings, and her linen undershift once a week, and it was washed. And she said she didn't smell at all, and even the camera crew didn't notice that uh, she smelled. There was another one where she was uh, pretending to be on a kind of Tudor, farm where she only changed, I think it was every six months she wore the same hose for for six months, but she said uh, there was um, only the very slightest smell. And anyway, it was masked by the odor of wood smoke because, um, in London, people cooked and heated their homes with coal fires, which were dreadful, smutty, smelly, uh, dirty things. But out in the country, you could get firewood. And so people heated their homes and cooked their food with firewood and fire, you know, firewood has quite a pleasant smell. So that probably masked the, the, um, stink of body odour.
0: I love these kind of sensory insights into the past you know something about imagining how how the past would have smelled. I think really brings you to it in a way that yeah other senses don't as much.
1: Yeah and and by god London must have smelled I mean, <laughs> apart from the apart from the, the river and the cesspits and the you know people's bodies uh, there was also um, uh, the animals uh, animal dung horses uh, the transport of the era, they produce a lot of dung, cattle being driven to market at Smithfield Market, all of that stuff had to be cleaned up and shifted. And, um, remember too that some of the, the cleaning agents that people used were themselves pretty smelly. Uh, people used to keep urine, because uh, stored urine turns into ammonia, which is quite an effective ble- bleach. So they pass their clothes through um, containers of stored urine to, to, to make them white. The principal way of making soap uh, up until the mid-19th century was to combine a product called lye, which is, you get it by passing water through wood ash and it's it's an astringent and you mix that with tallow. And tallow is derived by boiling down the carcasses of animals and is notoriously smelly. Um, so you would you would have this really smelly stuff, uh which was effective as a cleaning agent, but you needed lots and lots of clean water after you've done the laundry to rinse away the smell. And there's one account uh from I think the eighteenth century someone says You know, if you use lots of water to rinse, the smell of the soap is almost all taken away. And I thought it was the almost, which was significant there. There's still this, you know, lingering aroma of tallow or urine or uh, uh, dreadful.
0: (laughs) Well, we're nearly, um, it's no time to head back to the much better smelling present. I just had one question I also wanted to ask you. I wanted to touch on something that you said earlier about the relationship between things that are dirty. In the 19th century mind, the relationship between things that are dirty and things that are sinful. Um, how how would um, <laughs> Queen Victoria herself have made peace with this, living in a palace with no bathroom? W- was there a sense that, or th- this idea that, hot baths were dangerous to the health. How how did those two ideas marry up if people were resistant to washing too frequently, but equally worried that being unclean was sinful? If you see what I mean?
1: I think probably peer pressure. Once some people had discovered that if you did more than merely sort of wash your hands and and face uh, now and again, if you did have either an immersive bath or a kind of stand-up wash where you really properly soaked and, you know, underneath your arms and all that kind of thing, um, then uh, you were nicer to be around. I think once that idea had begun to circulate, then if you were somebody who wasn't doing that, you might stand out from your peers. And certainly there was a divide between the, the, the middle classes who by and large did wash and the working classes who by and large didn't because they couldn't, they couldn't get hold of the water. And there was this phrase, the great unwashed, which was coined in the 1830s. And that is an indicative of the middle class attitude to the working classes who were you know, literally unclean and literally stank. One doctor talks about um, always knowing when there were poor people in his surgery because as he came down the stairs from the floor above, he could smell them. You know, if there were poor people in, then their the stench would waft up the stairs. And John Wesley had coined this phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. But it was something that the middle classes embraced, but working class Methodists must have found very difficult to embrace because, A, the shortage of water, B, the fact that um, soap was not itself... Terribly um uh, pleasant, and soap was taxed. It wasn't until I forget the date, sometime in the second half of the nineteenth century, I think, that the tax on soap was lifted, and so people like uh, Harold Lord Lever came along and and you know were able to market sunlight soap um to the masses. And, and cleanliness became affordable, but it was cleanliness was a, a sign of affluence.
0: Mm. And one final question um, before we hear what memento you'd like to bring back from 1837. Um, you mentioned at the start that you wanted to visit this year because things were getting quite bad in London, but they weren't. Guess they weren't as bad as they were going to. You, the way you described it made me think it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's kind of what this moment has. The feeling that this moment has. What was going to allow the situation to become better by the time? When we reach I guess the 20th century
1: Science and technology John Snow wasn't the only scientist interested in the question of dirty water and what uh, what it might do that there was an effort in the middle of the 19th century in the face of new discoveries like snow's to rethink disease in the 1840s, 1850s most informed opinion assumed that disease, was a product of smell, bad smells. Um, And there's nothing essentially absurd about that, that the the slums in the East End, south of the river, were notoriously dirty and smelly, and they had notoriously high death rates and rates of disease. So it's reasonable to assume that those two things might be linked. What we now know is that actually, the thing that was killing people was the poor water supply. But the, the, the early Victorians had become fixated on this idea of what they called miasma, bad air, as being the source of disease. And Edwin Chadwick, the, the famous, uh, t- tremendously influential, though hugely controversial sanitary reformer, the man who actually invented the, the, the term sanitary, he um, at one stage said, all smell is disease. Um, which is extraordinary, uh, to our ears, yeah, extraordinary thing to say. And so they'd spent a lot of time trying to reduce the smells in the slums by actually putting more water through them, flushing them clean, which just sent more and more dirty water into the Thames where it could be pumped up and served up in the pipes to customers and, and could potentially kill them. Uh, and that, that orthodoxy, took quite a while to shift. Florence Nightingale, in fact, was a convinced miasmatist right until her death in, in 1910. She believed that it was smell that made people ill, not germs, not bacteria, not the water. But science gradually over the period epidemiology first of all then the science of bacteriology demonstrated that there were germs there were bugs that they could harm you that you could get rid of them there were ways of treating water in particular which would which would improve things um and so that was uh, that that was a a step forward and the other element was technology the the um ubiquity of in due course the filter beds. The other thing, of course, is politics. Because in 1852, the government, after years and years of resistance, finally admitted that it had to legislate to improve London's water quality. Uh, The politicians got involved. They passed a Metropolis Water Act, uh, which first of all obliged all the water companies to move their intakes out of the Tidal Thames and Tidal Lee, uh, where the water was so dirty. That made a big difference. It obliged them to filter their water um, not all of them have been doing that in the eighteen fifties, but this this made, meant they had to, and it also um, obliged them once they filtered the water to keep it in covered reservoirs, covered service reservoirs, so it couldn't get dirty again, couldn't get couldn't get uh, polluted once again. And those three things: um, improved improvements in technology, improvements in scientific understanding, and the intervention, reluctant but effective of government, and that government interfered again in 1871, a second Metropolis Water Act, when they established a water examiner, the first water regulator to make keep an eye on quality, and a, a government auditor to make sure that the companies weren't cooking the books. Um, those things, made they were what made the difference.
0: Nick, this has been a, a kind of whistle-stop tour through London's history, um, and we've touched on so many different aspects of kind of economic, big economic themes, and also the kind of most intimate moments of human life. So it's been so enjoyable and interesting. Um, Before we head back to the much cleaner, thankfully, present, (laughs) and I'm going to go and make myself a cup of tea after this interview and feel grateful for the running tap. You're allowed to bring back a memento with you. What memento
1: would you like to bring? I think I would like to bring back one of the minute books of the the water companies of the eighteen thirties, actually, in practice, what this would mean would be stealing it from the London Metropolitan Archives, who rightly would condemn me for wanting to do this. So, I, I this is this is a, a fantasy. One of the things that surprised me and delighted me when going through the archives was the quality of nineteenth uh, century penmanship. These are working documents; they are uh, records of corporate meetings, they, uh, they're often rather boring. They're often rather formulaic. Um, but if you take the, the, the minute books of a company's board of directors, plus the letters written by the chief clerk and his team, and also the things like the engineering drawings and plans, uh, de- drawn up by the company's engineers, the, the thing that really strikes you is that with one or two notable exceptions, they're so beautifully written. We lost all that when they invented the typewriter. And all those legions and legions of largely male clerks who spent their lives hunched over a desk, copying documents, it must have been a really boring way to earn a living. But their handwriting was beautiful. And I would like some samples to, to enjoy.
0: Well I love that and um it's good to know that you can still see them at the at the archives even if you can't take them home. Is that the case that could could a listener of the podcast if they went to the archives see one of these?
1: You could. Yeah, they do occasionally they have exhibitions with sort of 19th century documents but but if you register as a reader you're welcome to go into the London Metropolitan Archives reading room and request some of these documents so that you too can have a look. And I, just, and I just hope if you do it to, to, to enjoy the beautiful handwriting, you don't get one of the rare examples, which is absolutely almost illegible. <laughs>
0: Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much indeed for having me.
0: That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Nick Hyam about the year 1837 and his new book, The Mercenary River, which is published by Headline and is on sale this Thursday. To find out more about this episode and any of our others, head over to our website, tttpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye.